Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Goodwill of North Georgia President and CEO Keith Parker explains the decision to reopen thrift stores, donation centers, and career centers. So we have ambassadors at the front door who monitor folks as they come in and meter the number of people who can come in the store at any one time. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, as of 9 a.m. today, there are 35,793 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,523. There are 6,320 hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of 9 a.m. earlier today. In related news, free COVID-19 testing is available this afternoon at the Marquette Restaurant on Joseph E. Boone Boulevard. Now, as of right now, you just got a little bit on an hour to get there. drive through and walk-up testing will take place until 2 p.m. And those seeking tests should make an appointment ahead of time. The event is sponsored by Atlanta City Councilmember Antonio Brown and the Family Health Centers of Georgia. In other news, one of the two suspects in the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery now has legal counsel. Gregory McMichael will be represented by two Macon defense attorneys, Laura and Franklin Hogue. Gregory and his son, Travis McMichael, are currently jailed on charges of felony murder and aggravated assault. In a statement, Franklin Hogue said, quote, the full story to be revealed in time will tell the truth about this case, close quote. The Hogue say they will soon schedule a preliminary hearing and they will petition the court to set bail. And finally, Zoo Atlanta is ready to reopen this Saturday. In a press release, the Zoo Experience will now include a, quote, time ticketing system to control capacity and limit the number of guests inside the zoo. Also, a one-way experience to reinforce social distancing guidelines. Closer Look has reached out to Zoo Atlanta officials to appear on the program tomorrow for more details. This is Closer Look. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We're fundraising today because we need your help to keep WABE going strong. But don't go anywhere right now because this break will be short, I promise. Please help if you can at wabe.org slash donate. And joining me is the woman responsible for our wonderful Coffee Conversation mugs, WABE's marketing director, J.N. Berry. Hi, that's wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. We need your financial support right now because it helps pay for Closer Look. And today we're partnering with St. Vincent de Paul, Georgia. Your one donation means a low-income essential worker will receive a week's worth of transportation assistance. 
So please make a donation right now at wabe.org slash donate or by calling 678-553-9090. That's wabe.org slash donate. Thanks to all the listeners who've already made a financial gift to WABE. Listeners like Katherine Schneider in Kennesaw. She says, I'm going to quote because I'm a journalist, quote, it is so reassuring to listen to your station and hear the news from experts. Keep up the good work and stay safe. Close quote. Thanks to you, Catherine, for your message and for your support. Her donation makes this all possible, but we still need to hear from you. If you can afford to give, please do so at wabe.org slash donate. Or call 678-553-9090. If you're able to make a contribution of 1200 or more, you'll become a Cornerstone member. That allows you special access to WABE events, and you'll make a big impact on the quality of programming for our community. Please give if you can at the Cornerstone level. That breaks down to $100 a month. Go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Closer Look returns in about 30 seconds. Thanks for your help. Please give at 678-553-9090. And as always, thank you. It only takes a couple of minutes to give. And while we'd love for you to become a Cornerstone member at $100 a month, the average gift is $15 a month. So please give what you can afford. Just go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. And thanks. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As of this broadcast, one of the oldest nonprofits in the state of Georgia will reopen all of its remaining store locations. I'm talking about Goodwill of North Georgia, which last week announced it was going to reopen 21 of its 65 stores, as well as four of its 13 career centers, which are so important. This was all part of their phase reopening strategy. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Keith Parker, president and CEO of Goodwill of North Georgia. Keith, as always, good to talk to you. Love being here with you, Rose. Hope you're doing well. Hanging in there. Let's talk about the phasing in all of this and the strategy behind it. Was this a collective effort in determining how you all would reopen and and coming up with this phase reopening strategy? Yes, Uh, Rose, we tried to do a phase reopening because we wanted to keep our customers and our employees as safe as possible. So, you know, we have been shut down for almost two months and we've been strategizing the entire time about what's the right way to re-engage. So our strategy ended up being, let's reopen in our more rural areas to get started where we have lower volume stores and areas that, and and in fact, in many areas that don't have as many uh, confirmed cases of Mm -hmm. COVID-19. And so we selectively picked those stores to to test a few things. Uh, One, to see first what all of our employees come back and we had a resounding yes to that. Uh, we have not laid off anybody and kept everybody in full work status. Uh, and then two, we wanted to see how our customers would respond to the so- social distancing and other requirements that we're having now uh, as we reopen. And both in both those instances, things have worked out just extraordinarily well. The customers have really uh, adhered to any and every request we've made. Uh, and we've had very good sales to get us started. So we, uh, we're, we're viewing that first week of phased openings, a huge success. And then today, st- starting at 10 o'clock uh, today, we uh, had, we reopened the remaining store. So we started with 20 last week and reopened 45 more uh, today. 
and all uh, are now underway. Some have some significant lines already at the door, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, so far so good in terms of how people are responding. There's a lot of pent up demand. You know, we have literally tens of thousands of donations that have come in, and so we have some outstanding stuff that uh, that people are buying and getting some great deals on. So, Keith, I want to back up for a moment because you mentioned opening up in the rural areas. And for someone listening, they said, well, that, that makes sense. But now here in the Atlanta area, Gwinnett, DeKalb and Fulton, and Fulton has the highest number of confirmed cases in the state. Did you all consider all that? And with those stores, with those donation centers and stores and career centers in those counties, what concerns do you have? And can you understand someone saying, well, maybe in these areas, y'all should have waited a little bit? Well, that's an excellent question and something we certainly considered. But effectively, what we've done is what Home Depot, Publix, Target, Walmart have been doing for the last two months. And that is we've opened, but we're opening with significant guidelines to keep our employees and our customers safe. So we have ambassadors at the front door of every, every one of our facilities who monitor folks as they come in and meter the number of people who can come in a store at any one time. Mm-hmm. Now, in the past, you know, we have big stores uh, amongst Goodwill. We are amongst the largest network of Goodwill in, our, in the footprint of our stores, uh, typically a, a bit bigger than uh, what, what you'll see around the country. But we have uh, first looked at what the state guidelines were per uh, the amount of square foot we are supposed to have per customer, and we've exceeded that. So, in other words, we, uh, we've given each customer even more space. And we have multiple sales associates inside the stores to make sure that people don't bunch up amongst each other. Our lines inside the stores are one way so that once you go into an aisle, you, you have to keep going in that same direction. So, uh, to, so as to avoid people crossing one another in the aisles, we've actually shut down the, uh, water fountains and some other areas, even the dressing rooms where there are high touch types mm-hmm. of opportunities. Uh, so that people will not uh, find themselves uh, bunched up again with with a number of different folks. We even took the added step of we've got some uh, great disinfectant uh, cleaners. And so before we opened up any of the stores, we went through as a final step and cleansed every single square inch of both the front and the backs of our stores, all the clothing, everything. So it actually has a great, sort of like a new car smell to uh, all of our Goodwill stores right now. Keith, uh, so we have taken enormous precautions. Well, in terms of the precautions, let's talk about your customers. Are you all requiring folks to enter with a mask at least? We didn't make it a requirement, but we have a huge sign on the front of the door requesting it. And I'd say, in fact, I just got a note before we went on air from my uh, vice president of Donated Goods Retail, and he said 98% are wearing that mask voluntarily. Mm -hmm. So overwhelmingly, that's what people are doing. Uh, What we don't want to do is create any situation where we put our employee in conflict with the customer. So if a customer is adamant about not wearing a mask, we we don't want our our employee to become suddenly law enforcement, if you will. We don't want to put him or her in that position. But what we're finding, again, from our customers is they are hearing to all the requirements we're putting out there and uh, keeping keeping each other and themselves safe. 
okay, Keith, let's move to an area that obviously, which is what you told me a long time ago, why you took this job was being able to service people that maybe prior in their life, there might've been some barriers or challenges. For the folks who you all employ, a lot of them are veterans, people with disabilities, people who are trying to rebuild their lives. So as you all made this phase decision to reopen, it's going to impact a lot of those folks who are working for you all. Um, we did a few things that we wanted to make sure um, as this pandemic hit. You know, the number one workforce development nonprofit in the state, we want to set an example. So we have kept, we have not laid off a single person uh, at Google of North Georgia who didn't voluntarily want to do it. Some people literally just said they didn't want to work, and so they would prefer to not work uh, during this time period, and it hasn't been many, just a handful, mm-hmm. uh, but but uh, overwhelmingly, our folks, we've kept as whole as we possibly could. Anybody who was full-time before this started, they're full-time now. Anybody who had health benefits, they have health benefits now. Uh, and, and, and the strategy on that was twofold. First, we wanted to do it because we want to protect our folks, but also, like right now, when we're ready to reopen, the the callback rate that we've had when we've called our folks to come back to work has been incredible. When I've talked to other people who had to lay off their folks for a while or furlough their folks for a while, they've had a much more difficult time getting their employees back into uh, into work mode. So it's worked very, very well for us. And it's not to besmirch anybody else about how they've done it, but how we've approached it. We wanted to really take care of our people. We think it builds loyalty. We think it uh, helps us from a uh, main, from a seamlessness standpoint, because we know if we if we lay people off, then have to bring them back and then redrug test them and then get them retrained and all those things, all that's cumbersome. Uh, and we wanted to be able to right away open, open safely, and do it with causing as little harm to our employee uh, base as possible. And again, so far the results have been very, very good. Well, then let's move to the career centers, which are so important. You have about 13 of them. So your career centers are open as well. Yes. So we've opened up all of our uh, physical career centers, as well as we never really stopped on the virtual career center. And what I mean by virtual, you can go on our website, careerconnector.org, and get an enormous amount of services. In fact, that's where we saw the huge bump. When uh, we did have to physically shut down uh, some of our career centers uh, during the pandemic, and we also recognize that quite a few of the folks who come in and need our help, whether it's through computer services or a whole host of other things, that some may not actually have um, adequate internet connections in their homes. So mm-hmm. we've actually worked out a deal with a with a provider to provide either low cost or no cost internet uh, connectivity for them in their home. So we're we try to look at every part of the bases. You know, we want to cover every base that could prevent a person from being successful in their job search and then uh, jump right in. And, and Rose, if I may, the numbers are staggering in terms of the need that's out there. You know, we are, we've been looking at some of the numbers produced by the Atlanta Regional Commission and mm-hmm. others. And, you know, the, the two hardest hit areas, interestingly, have been Gwinnett and then South Atlanta, you know, south of I-20. Um, so some of the projections are unemployment rates that could be in the 22 to 30 percent range. You know, uh, already we see that uh, it could be 1.5 billion dollars in loss uh, loss compensation per month 
Hmm. 1.5 billion per month. And this is early on. This, this is before um, what people think will be another wave of unemployment uh, that's coming. So that's $5 billion. It translates into $5 billion in lost sales per month for all the various retailers and, and others who are out there. So we take that very seriously. And we're looking not just at what we try to do immediately to help people find work, but we're looking to the future, what, what the post-COVID-19 workforce will look like, what their needs will be. So we're strategizing and planning for that now. Uh, so it's a, it, it's a lot to take in, uh, but we want to stress to folks, shop at our stores, donate to us, because from those donations and your shopping, that generates profits for us that we then turn into workforce development to put people to work and get them into a career that's sustainable for them and their families. The voice here is Keith Parker, president and CEO of Goodwill of North Georgia. And we're talking about the organization's phase reopening strategy and moving forward. Well, Keith, have you all been able, were you all able to help folks even find employment during when the most businesses were shut down? Oh, absolutely. You know, the hardest hit areas have been, of course, you know, right here in our hometown, uh, Delta Airlines, the places, the, the airline industry has been extremely hard hit. Oh, just overall travel and tourism has just been really, really hit. Uh, of course, retail, all those places hit hard. But what we have seen is uh, you know, some surging opportunities in uh, wholesale trades, couriers and people who are out there uh, as messengers and so forth, warehouse storage. So even during this period, we've been able to work directly with employers like Walmart, Target, uh, Publix, Kroger, and then at a huge level, Amazon, helping those folks find uh, great positions. Mm-hmm. So some of our folks, you know, we've actually been able to actually help them improve their lives. So uh, a typical person who may have come onto our uh, careerconnected.org site may have been working a nine, 10 buck an hour retail job. We've been able to place some of those folks directly with an Amazon where the starting wage is $17 an hour. Uh, so some have really benefited from this opportunity, you know, a crisis turning into an opportunity. And yes, we, we've serviced more than 4,000 people uh, on our website during this time period and finding many of them positions. And we know this is just the beginning because it's going to be a, uh, a long, long haul here. We're seeing a bit of uh, the level of demand isn't through the roof in terms of people banging down the doors at the career centers yet. In part, we think because the unemployment benefits are still in place. Mm-hmm. But come July, when many of the folks who will have been on unemployment for two, three, four months, and those, uh, those benefits become, begin to come to an end, we're preparing for that upsurge of people who we know will be coming through the doors. Well, Keith, speaking of upsurge, and we're not sure if Georgia will see an increase in confirmed COVID-19 cases. We're not sure if there will be a spike. What will you all follow in terms of if you need to make a decision to go back and close stores? Absolutely. You know, we, we talk about it literally every single day. Um, I had a meeting just yesterday where uh, one of our committee meetings with, uh, with, with some of our board members and some staff uh, folks, and, and we're, we have been strategizing what happens if this second wave of closings occur. Uh, it's tough to stay in business to pay lease payments like we have, mortgage payments like we have, keep people employed, all those things with no revenue coming in. And no business can do that for too long a period of time. But we're looking at ways that we can keep ourselves sustainable as long as we possibly can. 
and, and we will continue to follow the, the primary things that we did uh, as the pandemic when it first hit. Health and safety of our employees, our customers, and our community, first and foremost. Second, we want to continue as best as we possibly can to provide mission services. And for us, our mission, again, is to keep people uh, working, put people back to work as best as we uh, possibly can, and then do as little harm long-term to our employees. So those will continue to be our guides. We will follow the CDC recommendations. We'll follow the statewide guidance and so forth. But no one knows, and that's the you know, precarious thing that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. We're all hopeful. We keep our fingers crossed that uh, what we've seen is the peak or the plateau, and we'll begin to see things begin to subside. But we will not be naive, and we will not put our folks in harm's way as best as we possibly can. And for those businesses that might want to reach out to the Goodwill of North Georgia or want to partner and say, hey, we have job openings, are you all vetting them in terms of their safety and their safety procedures for employees. We absolutely have a lot of thorough conversations with with uh, uh, with our folks. Particularly what, what we try to do is put the information in the hands of the job applicant. Mm-hmm. So we tell them, you know, here's what the work environment is going to be like. Here's what the hours are going to be like. Because what we don't want to do, the last thing we want to do is make the, put all the effort in, all the resources for placement and then the person quits two weeks later mm-hmm. or even two months later. We really want to create situations where it's a win-win for uh, the applicant and then for the company that he or she is going to. So we want that, we want that applicant to be fully aware of what, uh, what's involved. And then we empower them to make their, make their decision. And we have major concerns with the employer. We certainly talk that through uh, just like we, uh, you know, we, we try to make placements that work. So mm-hmm. if a person has a criminal background, uh, well, violence or things like that, we're not going to tell that person, hey, look, oh, we're going to try to place you in a daycare. No, we're not going to do that. Uh, but if a person has medical, and if a person has medical conditions underlying, and we try to get that out of them when we talk to them, not to get into their business, but to, again, to, for the very reason we, what you were just mentioned, we want to keep them safe and make them successful. We don't want a person with underlying physical uh, or mental uh, issues Mm -hmm. that would put them in harm's way or their coworkers in harm's way as we uh, try to place them. So we keep all those things in a very trusting way. Our career counselors have been doing this for a long time. Uh, We have a no judgment type of mentality. When you walk through the door, uh, we we welcome you. We pat you on the back virtually now (laughs) or, or from a distance but they know that they're going to get the very best from us in terms of giving them as best information as we can to place them in a place that they're going to be successful uh, and not put them in a situation where they're jeopardized. And Keith, as we wrap up, just once again, someone listening saying, okay, that's great. Y'all are hiring. What do I need to do? So definitely come to goodwillng.org. That's goodwillofnorthgeorgia.org. That's our website. Uh, And from there, everything is pretty uh, self-explanatory because from there you can connect with one of our career counselors. From there you can get direct information about how we're hiring. We're still hiring a few people mm-hmm. in our stores and uh, uh, throughout several of our territory. Uh, and you can learn all the, uh, all the different ways to work with Goodwill. If you're an employer who uh, needs uh, some help with finding great people, let us know. And if you're an employer who has to make the very difficult decision uh, to lay people off or to terminate someone's employment, 
contact us as well on that because we want to make that transition from them being unemployed to being employed and moving into other great opportunities uh, as seamless as possible. Uh, and that's what we're here for. And Keith, give that website again one more time. It's Goodwill NG, like North Georgia, Goodwill NG. Great. Now, Keith, a lot of folks, we've all taken this time to clean out our attics and basements, and we got a lot of stuff, but I noticed that you all said, look, we have a lot of inventory right now, so you're not accepting donations again until, what, May 18th? Yeah, just a few days uh, until the 18th. Just leave it in your trunk. We've made donating extraordinarily safe. We completely revamped our donation process. So now we suggest you simply put everything you want to donate to us in your trunk mm-hmm. or in the back of your SUV. Drive up to one of our attended uh, donation centers, our stores, any of those places, and never get out of the car. Don't even roll down your window. Uh, just pop the trunk. Our folks will take it out completely, leave your receipt in the car for you so that you can then itemize for your taxes, uh, tax purposes, just to get, get a receipt to uh, remind yourself of what you've dropped off for completely contactless donation. Uh, uh, and that's what we are really stressing because we want to keep you safe, keep our customers safe. We have a mountain of donations of incredible stuff. I mean, just incredible. I'm still looking for bookcases and I need yeah. a file cabinet, so. We, we got it. We got them. Come, come see us. Our stores are loaded and they're spotless. Uh, our customers are so eager to, to help people. And then come Monday, drop your donations off. We're back to normal. And Keith, I know that you are an executive. You take leadership very seriously. I've been in the stores with you. You Have you been, have you made your rounds? Have you been able to go out into some of the stores and career centers and personally see and feel that you all were ready to make this decision? Oh my gosh, yes. We have been doing that nonstop for weeks. Um, our team is so excited about having customers back in the store. You know, one of, one of the fascinating things, um, going through this process. Our employees, many of them are, you know, folks who like much of society is pretty fragile, you know, mm-hmm. week to week, uh, not, not a lot of savings, not a lot of uh, resources to just fall back on. And what they told me loud and clear was, you know, first keep us safe. Uh, so if, if, if it's not safe for us to open, don't, but then once it is, get us back to work. I mean, uh, that, that's what we've been hearing. And, and that's why, our, like right now, Rose, while other employers are literally hovering around 30, 40% of uh, retaining their people during this period, we're over 90%. You know, uh, some of our hard, you know, some of our hardest working people working over at the CDC, working at the RS buildings and places like that, cleaning up, you know, doing, doing some of the custodial work and so forth. 94% of those folks are coming to work every day. 94%. That tells you the level of commitment that, that our people have. Uh, so if, if 94% of the folks are coming to work to do things like clean up bathrooms, clean up some of these uh, high trafficked areas in the CDC and so forth, definitely our retail people are excited about coming back as well. So uh, we're, we're thrilled. They're glad to get back to work. They want to see customers and they're doing it because they know what our mission is. They know that by them coming to work, helping to um, facilitate the sale of it's likely used merchandise and clothing that, that people have, that it's helping others find their dream job, helping others move from the unemployment roles to the uh, world of the employed, and helping change communities. All these things are happening right under the roof of Goodwill of North Georgia. 
Keith Parker, President and CEO of Goodwill of North Georgia. Keith, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Rose, I'm always glad to be with you. You stay safe. Take care of you and yours. I will. You too. This is Closer Look. I am Rose Scott, and we're fundraising today, but we're keeping these breaks very short to get you right back to the program. Please help if you can at wabe.org slash donate. Joining me is J.N. Barry, WABE's marketing director. Hi, that's wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Now, your donation helps us bring you the latest news about the coronavirus, the 2020 election, the Ahmaud Arbery murder investigation, and so much more. Today, we're partnering with St. Vincent de Paul, Georgia, to help low-income essential workers. So every donation we get today from listeners like you will pay for a week's worth of transportation assistance for an essential worker. It's so important right now. So to make that happen, give right now at wabe.org slash donate. So yes, go ahead, give now at wabe.org slash donate or by calling 678-553-9090. Closer Look is always here for you every day. We bring you great interviews and allow you to connect with the rest of the Atlanta community. You rely on us, now we're relying on you to make a donation. Please give right now at wabe.org slash donate. Or call 678-553-9090. We need your donation because 84% of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. Many of our listeners make that possible by giving $15 a month. So for you, please give what you can afford. Do that at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. So Closer Look is just about 30 seconds away. Thank you so much to everyone who's already helped us. Now it's time to hear from you. Please donate at 678-553-9090 or at wabe.org slash donate. It only takes a couple of minutes to give, I promise. And if you're already a sustaining member of WABE, please consider giving an additional gift if you can. It'll really help us during these challenging times. Make your donation by calling 678-553-9090 or go to wabe.org slash donate. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Another round of funding is coming from Congress. That's a simple way of describing another COVID-19 economic relief proposal. Now, this bill has an acronym, HEROES, or Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act, or you can just say HEROES. And it will include small business benefits. Now, You may recall, as of last week, the federal government has provided more than $500 billion in loans to small businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program. Still, as we've heard on this program, some small business owners are still experiencing challenges navigating through the whole process. 
it's extremely, extremely scary situation. Uh, and many people don't realize how it affects small business, how it affects minorities also. When you take a building like ours to have so much equity in it, the mortgage companies stand to win if they step in to take our particular property. So we don't know how, how much longer we can continue the, down this road. Did you all apply for any funding relief at all? We did. We applied for everything. We applied for the disaster relief. Um, it's like a black hole. <clears throat> you fill it out online and you don't know what happens after that. There's no one to call and talk to directly about it. We are originally told, was told that we would get an answer within seven weeks. We called SBA back. That turned into two weeks, then three weeks, and now four weeks, and we still don't have an answer. We don't know how they're selecting anyone when it comes to that. So the next step was let us fill out the PPP program. Mm-hmm. And that caused some challenges also because in our industry, 80% of the workers are 1099. So therefore, that cut out most of our employees from our ability to be able to help them with the PPP program. And right now, we're still waiting on the answer to that from one bank. Now, that was Omar Ali, a local property manager and developer, sharing his experience just a few weeks ago here on Closer Look. Well, now comes a new report from the Small Business Administration's Inspector General released last week. It does align with what many small business owners have suspected. Lenders have not been distributing funds as intended. And joining me now from Durham, North Carolina, to discuss this is Yasmeen Ferrari. She's a senior policy counsel for the Center for Responsible Lending, a Durham-based nonprofit policy group. Yasmin, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Before we get into this new report, I want to begin with the latest funding proposal. Now, it's just come out. It's very lengthy at 1,800-plus mm-hmm. plus, <laughs> plus pages. But... I take it you all will probably have some of the same concerns from the first funding package. Now, this one is supposed to include a few changes to the PPP, which would include extending coverage to the end of the year. But beyond that, you all obviously had some concerns with this first funding package. Yes, we did. And you're right. We have not had time to fully analyze those 1,800 pages, but we are working on an analysis of that. But to get back to the first program, the initial round of funding, and now there have been two rounds, we want to talk a little bit about the issues with the first program and the structural disadvantages that really made it so that small businesses of color were unable to access the program the way that we would like and would expect. So one issue with the, the first program, and I just want to make this point, is that no matter what happens in the upcoming programs, and we can talk about recommendations for the future, what, mm-hmm. we've, what we're recommending, and also, you know, what we, we hope to see in Heroes, is that for a lot of these businesses, getting access to that pr- the program early on in this crisis was crucial. So, you know, being able to, when you're a really small business, access, let's say, $10,000 can make the difference between staying afloat and not. And so getting $10,000 promptly, like those that were able to access the, the funds early on, which were unfortunately not as likely to be the smallest small businesses, that you know the, the vast majority of businesses of color are at 95% are owner, non-employee-based firms. Gotcha. And so, and that is true of white-owned businesses as well. 78% of white-owned businesses are non-employee firms, but businesses of color, you know, put another way, are 81% less likely 
than white owned businesses to not to have any employees. Well, yes. Yeah, so um, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Do you think because I've heard mm-hmm. some critics say perhaps even with the rollout, maybe the process, the rollout process should have been tiered, starting with the really small business owners and then those that might have been just sole proprietorships? Yes. There are a number of ways that the program could be structured to better encourage lenders to actually make small loans to the smallest of businesses. So the PPP fee structure, for example, heavily discourages small loans to smaller businesses, which are more likely to be businesses owned by people of color. Basically, businesses that are more resourced were advantaged by the structure of the program in lots of ways. So larger payrolls, make you eligible for larger roles, having existing relationships with financial institutions and commercial lenders. All of these are huge advantages. So there are a number of ways in which the program is structurally disadvantaged for the smallest of small businesses. So you think that was intentional or unintentional? Well, I I don't know if it was intentional or not intentional, but we know that there are structural problems with the program and that there are ways to address those. So Mm -hmm. you've named some ideas of how you might address those. We have others, including changing the fee structure and reserving money for CDFIs, community development financial institutions and MDIs, minority depository institutions that we know have a track record of better serving communities of color. So, you know, reserving money, which is something we asked for in round two, um, didn't happen. There was a reserve for for smaller financial institutions overall, those that have between 10 and $50 billion. Mm. Just because it's a smaller financial institution doesn't necessarily mean it's serving communities of color well. In fact, we've seen in the past that that hasn't been the case, but we do know that CDFIs and MDIs have a track record of serving businesses of color. And so setting aside money for those is something that we've asked for. It's something we're asking for moving forward. And it's also just important to note that we know very little about this program and who it's serving. We don't have precise geographic data and we def- we don't have demographic data. So one thing that we're asking for and for money that is yet to be dispersed and also there are ways to make it possible for money that's already been dispersed. The SBA has not collected data, Mm -hmm. um, optional demographic data, and that is something that we want to see the SBA do moving forward. So, you know, the loans that have already been dispersed, because this is a a loan program that actually is going to be turned into grants, they're forgivable loans that Mm -hmm. are essentially going to be grants for the vast majority of these businesses if the money is spent the way it was intended, they are going to be applying for loan forgiveness. And we we want the SBA to ask for demographic data in those loan forgiveness applications. And then also as they continue this PPP program or or something similar moving forward, because we don't have any transparency about Mm -hmm. this program. And in order to, you know, know what's happening and for there to be appropriate oversight and accountability and to be able to make changes to better serve the communities that Congress intended to be served. Ultimately, they they wanted, you know, underserved and rural communities to be served. And it's good for the economy mm-hmm. and, and important, an important lifeline for these businesses. We need that data. In this report from the SBA's Inspector General, I'm going to pull a quote here. 
Because SBA did not provide guidance to lenders about prioritizing borrowers in underserved and rural markets, these borrowers, including rural, minority, and women-owned businesses, may not have received loans as intended. That pretty much summarizes everything you just said, Yasmin. Yes, absolutely. What we want is for the SBA to provide guidance because we do want a reserve for CDFIs and MDIs, but we also want there to be guidance and structural changes to help other larger, more mainstream financial institutions also serve these communities because that is going to be necessary to make sure that the funds are distributed equitably and fairly. There was something also that, it, and this is, will jump out, it obviously might be alarming to some people, but per that report, 91% of Latino-owned businesses, 91% of Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander-owned businesses, 75% of Asian-owned businesses stand close to no chance of receiving a PPP loan through a mainstream bank or credit union, close quote. And I want to focus on that the latter there, which is the, the credit unions, because for so many people, they feel like the credit union has always been that community, that small business, that mom-and-pop friendly oriented lending institution. What do you make of that? Well, you know, the vast majority of the funds kind of flew out the door very quickly through these mainstream, larger financial institutions. We don't unfortunately have data to show what, as I said, who exactly is being served by credit unions, for example. Mm -hmm. We do know that certain institutions have a better track record of serving those communities, but I, really, those numbers just represent the existing data is, and there's not a whole lot of existing data, using Census Bureau data and SBA analysis from the past about the number of businesses that are this kind of smallest of small businesses that are um, non-employer businesses. Or we also know that businesses of color just on average have fewer employees. The loans they would be eligible for are are smaller. You know, the allowable loan size is determined by the size of the business's monthly payroll. Mm -hmm. And the structure of the program, the fee structure, disincentivizes making small loans. So your average loan in the first round of funding, what we do know is that the average loan was around $200,000. For these small non-employer businesses and businesses that don't have very many employees, you're not eligible for a $200,000 loan. So mm -hmm. we know just from the average loan size that it wasn't serving as many of these small businesses that really it could make the difference between them staying afloat and not just being able to get that money and get it early. So we're, we want to see changes moving forward that help incentivize all financial institutions to make these smaller loans to, to small businesses. But what's already happened in the first round, those who lost out, you know, they suffered damage that that's already done. Mm -hmm. And once you get behind on commercial rent, you start incurring late fees, those kinds of things. It just becomes more and more costly. And so we, of course, want to see changes moving forward. And we do have recommendations about the change in the fee structure that could help that, you know, a, a minimum origination fee. Because if you're getting an origination fee of, say, 5%, on a $200,000 loan mm -hmm. versus a $10,000 loan, one of those loans, any financial institution is, is disincentivized to make. Absolutely. The voice you hear is Yasmin Ferrari. She's a senior policy counsel for the Center for Responsible Lending, a nonprofit policy group based in Durham, North Carolina. You were getting into solutions. 
And then this was very interesting to help small businesses access the program because before you can even get to the application, just accessing the program, we're going to start with that. What are those solutions you see to modify or change that process? Well, if you don't already have an existing financial relationship, obviously it was going to take longer mm-hmm. and you don't have kind of people on staff that can help with these things. It was going to take longer and to understand this process and, and access the, the funds. So we need to give funding to you know groups like CDFIs and MDIs that we know do prioritize communities of color. But we also need to issue guidance. And this is what the SBA is kind of being asked to do and mm-hmm. expected to do to mainstream banks and credit unions to, so that it helps them better serve businesses of color and get them access to these funds. And then, of course, at a minimum, you know, I just want to emphasize that transparency is essential in all of this. So the SBA must collect and analyze data to show where the money is going. So corrective measures can be taken to avoid leaving out communities need the support the most. And it would be interesting if there was some type of data to reflect, even if just by zip code. I think that might give an indication as well. How optimistic are you that that will happen, that the SBA will collect that type of information? I'm not going to make a prediction about how likely that is to happen, but I know various organizations beyond consumer advocacy groups, of course, we are asking for, for more precise geographic data. And I know that other organizations are around the country, news organizations and others are are asking for more transparency around this program. This is a huge taxpayer money and taxpayers have the right to know where what's happening with this money. Now this this program was essential. You know, I think policymakers rightly made the judgment that it's better for the economy as a whole for individuals to be attached to their businesses, to keep these businesses going so that people who've worked hard for many years you know, don't have to rebuild everything again. So it was a necessary use of taxpayer money to keep the economy going. But we just want to make sure that whole communities are not, you know, effectively left out. And finally, lenders were very critical, too, because lenders said, you know, we were not given enough guidelines. When folks Mm -hmm. went to the web portals, they weren't working. So to be fair, a lot of lenders, a lot of institutions says we were kind of just hung out here and we didn't have all the information we needed. So mm-hmm. just wanted to, you know, felt that we should note that as well. And, you know, the SBA needs to provide more guidance to these institutions to help them better serve these communities and change the structure to minimize the disincentive for serving the smallest of businesses. After this next funding round, if there are the same problems, and I hate to ask you to look through your, your crystal ball here, your small business mm-hmm. crystal ball here, but could we see a huge number of small businesses either shutter for good or leave the communities that they've been in? Absolutely. I mean, that that's what we're we're concerned about. We're worried about how that may be has already happened in a way that really disadvantages communities of color because like I said, getting money promptly at the beginning of this crisis for some of these small businesses when they had payments still to make on their commercial rents, on their equipment, and on those kinds of things. You know, we, we are really concerned that those who lost out and suffered damage, that that's damage that has been done and that will cause permanent setbacks. Mm-hmm. And of course, we continue to be worried about that moving forward. 
and are concerned about the impact that this program, if changes are not made, will continue to have on the widening racial wealth gap. Yasmin Ferrari, Senior Policy Counsel for the Center for Responsible Lending, a nonprofit policy group based in Durham, North Carolina. Yasmin, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This is Closer Look, and I am Rose Scott, and we are fundraising today, but this spring we're doing it a little differently, and we'll keep these breaks as short as possible. Please, if you can, help us at wabe.org slash donate. Joining me is someone with the perfect public radio name, J.N. Barry, WABE's marketing director. WABE.org slash donate is where you can go to give or call 678-553-9090. Hi, I want you to know that your donation right now helps pay for all the critical news and information you get on WABE. And today we're partnering with St. Vincent de Paul, Georgia to help low-income essential workers. Here's how that works. Every donation we get today from listeners like you will pay for one week of transportation assistance to an essential worker. To make that happen, give right now at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Help WABE and help an essential worker during this challenging time. That's wabe.org slash donate or just call 678-553-9090. Thanks to listeners who've already made their donation. Folks like Kelly O'Neill in Marietta. She says, thank you all for continuing this vital programming during these difficult and unprecedented times. We are grateful. Well, Kelly, we're grateful for you. And we're grateful that Kelly is a WABE member. Now it's your turn. We can only provide this type of programming because of donations from listeners like you. So please give at wabe.org slash donate. Or call 678-553-9090. It's important that we hear from you right now because 84%, that's a big chunk, of our funding comes from the Atlanta community. Many of our listeners typically give $15 a month, but please give what you feel you can afford. Do it at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. Thank you so much to everyone who's helped us so far doing the drive, but we need you too. Please give right now at 678-553-9090. Or at wabe.org slash donate. If you donate online, you'll get to see all of the great thank you gifts we offer to members. It only takes a couple of minutes to give. And if you're already a sustaining member of WABE, thank you. And please consider giving an additional gift. We need you, Atlanta. Go to wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. 9090. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.